Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of Seminary Table Talk. I'm your host, Jaron Summers, and I'm a co-host along with my friend, Thomas. Hello, my name is Thomas Johnson. How are y'all today? Uh, we are excited to be bringing you this episode from Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Jaron and I are both first-year Master of Divinity students, and we'll be excited to talk to you today about the indulgence content controversy, and this is considered to be the uh, starting point of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, so this episode, this is a very important episode. It's going to set up all of our future episodes. We will be talking about indulgences and how Martin Luther reacts to these indulgences and how that sets up the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so Jaron, what is considered an indulgence? Well, you know, an indulgence is really interesting. They were first authorized by Pope Leo X, according to Justo Gonzalez. And what they were used for was for individuals to buy their way out of purgatory. Um, so how this would work is, say I'm a peasant farmer in Central Europe, and someone comes along with a document signed by the Pope. Well, I give some money and then they give me this document and this document could knock off, you know, two years, five years, 10 years out of my time in purgatory. Um, and actually probably be a good idea for us to um, describe and define purgatory. We might have some individuals who are not familiar with that Catholic doctrine. Mm -hmm. So purgatory is a concept um, developed uh, during the Middle Ages uh, and some church historians actually date the concept of purgatory dating um, going back further uh, during the time of the church parents, um, the early church parents. And purgatory was essentially a limbo state. Um, you weren't in heaven and you weren't in hell. So you're kind of in a state of limbo. And as, as Jaron mentioned, the indulgence was essentially a way for you and your loved ones to get out of the state of limbo and ascend into heaven. Yeah, and that state of limbo called purgatory was meant to purge you of any sin so that you are fully clean when you enter heaven. And so it's not hell, but it's like a purification realm for you to spend X number of years before you enter into the Lord's domain. Mm -hmm. So Pope Leo X authorizes indulgences um, so individuals can pay the church and subsequently lose time in purgatory. Mm -hmm. um, and then this kind of segues into um, the life and the life and history of Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther was a um, born to a German family um, in 1492 in 1486. My apologies in 1486, and he um, grew up in a small and grew up in a large family. Oh, we're gonna have to stop. <laughs> yeah let's hello everyone and welcome to our first episode of seminary and table talk we are your hosts my name is jaron summers and i am thomas johnson and we're both first year uh, master of divinity students at trinity lutheran seminary in columbus ohio and today we have a really special episode for you uh, this will set up all of our episodes into the future We'll be talking today about indulgences, the indulgence controversy, and the life of Martin Luther as he responds to indulgences, thus setting off the Protestant Reformation. Now, Thomas, 
Can you explain to our listeners what is an indulgence? So to put it in to put it in simple terms, an indulgence is a get out of jail free card. It was first instituted by Pope Urban II, um, and the significance of Pope Urban II is he was the one who called for a crusade, the reclamation of a holy land, a holy war against the Ottoman Turks uh, in the 11th century. So what he did was he essentially told the knights who would, who would participate in this holy war, here is a way for you to purge you of your sins and get yourselves out of purgatory. Um, but the, the catch was the knights themselves had to be pure. The knights had to look introspectively and if they felt pure, they could receive this indulgence. Um, there are some contemporaries of Pope Urban II who are critical of this sale of indulgences because um, they would, they saw it as a get out of hell free card. Um, so indulgences were meant to um, purge. It was a form of penance meant to purge the people, purge the knights of their atrocities as a way for them to fast track their way to heaven. Um, and Jaren, can you talk to us about purgatory? Yeah, so some of you who are not Catholic or not really familiar with the Catholic faith, there is a teaching about what is known as purgatory. It is a realm between heaven and hell. And if when you die, if you are going to heaven, you have to go through purgatory first. Purgatory is basically a place where you are purged, hence the word purgatory, you are purged of your sin. And so that way you are made perfectly clean to enter heaven. And this takes... A certain amount of time, depending on how much purging you need. So it could take you two years. It could take you 50 years, 100 years. And these indulgences, by the time we get to Martin Luther's Day, are being sold. They're little uh, sheets of paper, and they're being sold. And by giving the church money, you are taking time off of your uh, sentence in purgatory. And purgatory is not really a pleasant place to go to. Mm. And also with the indulgences, they were um, going into Martin Luther's day, but first starting with Jan Hus, who is considered one of the proto-reformers um, who preceded Martin Luther, but also um, raised the problem of indulgences because they are considered to be business propositions as a way of financing um, the construction of St. Peter's Basilica. And this, um, in these business propositions, these selling of indulgences um, continued into the day and life of Martin Luther. Yeah, so setting us up with Martin Luther, what happens is around his time, uh, Pope Leo X authorizes local rulers uh, to take a sum of the money given to indulgences. So the Pope gives out indulgences, and whatever money people use to buy the indulgences, some of it goes to the local rulers, and some of it goes to the Pope uh, to finish building uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And so what's happening is local rulers are supporting these indulgences because they grow in wealth, as does the Pope. And maybe before we get moving on to um, one of our favorite pugnacious individuals, Johann Tetzel, we can talk about what Martin Luther is doing at this time. Mm-hmm. So Martin Luther, um, at the time of this indulgence controversy, is a, um, is a monk in the observant Order of Augustinians, which is a very, um, was one, and to kind of give some background on monastic orders, um, they're the scholars of the day. They were the ones who copied manuscripts of the Bible. They're the ones who 
um, went into the towns and preached. Um, Martin Luther was part of a mendicant order, um, the order of observant Augustinians, which was very rigid. Um, Martin Luther had a bit of an introspective crisis at this time because he felt he wasn't worthy enough to receive the grace of God, and he had a very afflicted conscience. Yeah, and at this time, he starts teaching. He is um, progressing through academia, and he's teaching some classes, and he's preaching in church every once in a while, and in comes a Dominican named Johann Tetzel. Mm -hmm. And I love Johann Tetzel just because I find him fascinating. I don't think he did good things, but he's a fascinating individual, and he is pugnacious as all get out. Mm -hmm. um, he is like the church's main salesperson of indulgences in central Germany. And here's, a, here's an excerpt of Johann's Tetzel um, on indulgences and kind of why they are good. Um, this is um, he gave this sermon during the um, during 1509. Um, you may obtain letters of safe conduct from the vicar of our Lord Jesus Christ, by means of which you're able to liberate your soul from the hands of the enemy and convey it by means of contrition and confession, safe and secure from all pains of purgatory into the happy kingdom. For know that in these letters are stamped and engraven all the merits of Christ's passion there laid bare. Consider that for each and every mortal sin, it is necessary to undergo seven years of penitence after confession and contrition, either in this life or in purgatory. How many mortal sins are committed in a day? How many in a week? How many in a month? How many in a year? How many in the whole extent of life? Though aware nine numberless, and those that commit them must suffer endless punishment in the burning pains of purgatory. But with these confessional letters, you will be able at any time in life to obtain full indulgence, indulgence for all penalties imposed upon you and all the cases except the four reserved to the, to the apostolic see. Thence throughout your whole life, whenever you wish to make confession, you may receive the same remission except in case reserved to the Pope. And afterwards, at the hour of death, a full indulgence as to all penalties and sins and your share of all spiritual blessings that exist in the church militia and all its members. Do you not know that when it is necessary for anyone to go to Rome or undertake any dangerous journey, he takes his money to a broker and gives him certain percent, five or six or 10, in order that Rome or elsewhere may, he may receive a, again his funds intact by means of the letters of the same broker, are you not willing then for the fourth part of the florin to obtain these letters by virtue of which you may bring not your money, but your divine and immortal soul safe and sound in the land of paradise? So, Jaron, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, it's really interesting because clearly, at least from this sermon, he believes he's doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, the Catholic Church, some are believing it's a good thing. Others disagree with that, but there are some who truly believe indulgences are a great way to help out individuals. Um, mm -hmm. But as we will see, many local people do not feel the same way, especially when Martin Luther begins preaching. Um, Johann Tetzel was also known for saying that indulgences made the sinner, quote, cleaner than when coming out of baptism, end quote, and also that individuals were cleaner than Adam before the fall, he would go around uh, chiming with this motto, and it's pretty catchy. He says, 
As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And what ends up happening is many local German people begin to see this as stealing their wealth and betraying the church's teachings. However, it is clear that many officials thought that they were doing good. They were helping to strengthen consciences, uh, affirm individuals of the grace of God, and also bring prosperity to Christ's church, the Catholic church at this time. And so clearly they believed that they were either doing a good thing or they were in it to gain more wealth. And both of those, uh, the line can get blurred there a little. Mm-hmm. So what was Luther's response to um, these, this sale of indulgences? Well, what ends up happening is Luther decides to write what is known as his 95 theses. It's 95 statements. Uh, and he writes these out and nails them to the door of the Church of Wittenberg. Why would he nail them? to the Church of Wittenberg? No, that is a great question. We don't really nail things to doors anymore, but Martin Luther nailing these to the door was basically a way, it's like Facebook of the day. Um, When you wanted to send a message, you would post it to the church door uh, for everyone to encounter and talk about. And Martin Luther, he wasn't wanting to create his own church or anything. He wanted to have an academic discussion and reform the Catholic Church. Um, because he thought that it was straying a little and becoming greedy in his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things kind of begin getting out of hand almost immediately. Um, how so? Well, what the, the issue here is that Luther, in the 95 Theses, Luther attacks indulgences. That's what he spends most of his time attacking. For example, Thesis 82 says that if the Pope has the authority to free people from purgatory... He should use this power out of love, not for the trivial reason of building a church. And Theseus 51, the Pope should give money to the poor, not take it. And so Luther is saying if the Pope has authority to free people from purgatory, he should just do it. He shouldn't require money. And um, Luther is kind of going for that preferential option for the poor. The church should, instead of hoarding money and using it, they should be giving it away. And the issue that I think uh, we need to focus on is that not only does this endanger the profit of the Pope in the Catholic Church, but it also endangers the profits of German rulers. He's cutting into the revenue stream of the church and the government by doing this. Mm-hmm. And ta- uh, tacking on to that, Jaron, uh, one of the electors who was in Wittenberg, um, he was actually um, in conversation with a Pope because the Pope... Uh, consider this um, certain elector, I believe it was Frederick, um, German elector Frederick, uh, he was in conversation on being um, part, being in, near the Pope and being part of the, being the Pope's right-hand man. Um, but Jared, when was it that, um, was it the 95 Theses that sparked this Protestant Reformation or what would you say the starting point for this is? Typically, Um, The posting of the 95 Theses is the date that historians give for the start of the Protestant Reformation. Um, But for all of those who do not really have a background in history, I want to say that when historians give dates to events, uh, they're just kind of giving it there to make it easy. So So historians can point, oh, this is the exact day that we'll start considering the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. In reality, uh, things are much more nuanced. You know, the Protestant Reformation, we saw proto-Protestants beginning with uh, Jan Hughes 
and others like and uh, John Wycliffe in uh, England and the Protestant Reformation more kind of just slowly snowballs but they tend to say the 95 theses is when it begins just for to make things easier. Mm-hmm. And what more to Luther's legacy um, do we have about the 95 theses? Um, why did, was he called before a council? Yeah, well, he was called before a council. He was called before the Diet of Worms uh, to talk about um, in front of Charles V, the ruling Habsburg, and also in front of church authorities talking about uh, his beliefs and why they are not heretical and why the church should adopt them. Um, But I I think it also is important, the date of Luther's 95 Theses. Uh, This date is still celebrated in many mainline churches around the world. If um, I think it's a special date if you wanted to uh, throw up that date. Mm-hmm. It's Oct- also October 31st, also known as All Hallows Eve. Uh, three year, uh, four years ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses. And this year we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Dieta Worms, where Luther famously said, uh, paraphrasing here, uh, if you can't convince me of God's without without God's word, I am bound by my conscience. Therefore, I shall not recant. Um, that is a paraphrase, but it's also kind of the that seminal statement of Luther saying, "I am not backing down." And the reason why the Dieta Worms was important is Luther signed his death warrant. That Luther was now was now branded as a heretic and excommunicated from the church. And what's interesting is he leaves the Diet of Worms early because he fears for his life and he ends up getting kidnapped, but it's not the Catholic rulers or the German princes who kidnap him, it's his own friends. Mm -hmm. And they take him to the castle in Wittenberg where uh, Frederick the Wise is the uh, ruler there. And he basically hides out there for several years writing and studying and uh, thinking what to do next. Mm -hmm. And I really like that point you made about that quote, that paraphrase from the Diet of Worms, because that's an important part of what becomes Protestant theology. Luther says that uh, you cannot convince me unless you use scripture or reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's kind of throwing down this ecclesiastical authority or apostolic tradition. He's saying that that's not enough to convince him anymore. You need to go directly to God's word to do that. Mm-hmm. And Jaron, going back to um, your mention of uh, Luther being at the castle, is this is where Luther begins his translation of the Bible um, from the original languages and the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into the German, because Luther believed that everybody should have access to the Bible. And what, what was the Bible, what, what language was the Bible written in at this time? Um, it was written in Latin, uh, and it was the official language, which had been the official language, the official Bible translation for 400 years, you know, um, little over a thousand years. Um, St. Jerome was the architect of the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, um, funded by Paula and Marcella. And so Luther translated from the original languages, um, Greek and Hebrew, into German. 
Um, also at this time, Luther was constructing um, and writing his small catechism, which the small catechism was an instructional handbook on the basics of Christian theology, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the sacrament of holy baptism and the sacrament of the altar, holy communion for families. And he also was writing his large catechism, which he meant for pastors and adult teachers. So Luther did a lot of writing during this time. He was a prolific author. Mm -hmm. And he also had some, he was very persuasive, at least stylistically. He knew mm -hmm. how to use rhetoric. And what I think is really interesting is even today, the uh, Lutheran church in Germany still uses um, an updated version of Luther's German Bible. They mm -hmm. still use part of that German translation. What's interesting is Luther is one of the first authors to write in German. Mm -hmm. and he kind of helps codify that language. And so the German we have today can be directly tied to Martin Luther, which is absolutely phenomenal. And Jaron, why was Martin Luther able to have his writings mass produced? I think that's another important point is we have recent, we have new technology at the time of Martin Luther. And I think that is an extremely important point, and I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, the technology of the Reformation, uh, mostly Gutenberg's printing press, which had movable type, um, made printing so much faster and easier. It used to be that you would have to um, give money to monks or a monastery, and they would hand copy your book or your writing, and it would take tons of time, and it would be easy to make mistakes. Gutenberg's printing press allows Luther and his writings to be spread and disseminated among the masses. Not only does literacy go up, but the prices of literature goes down. So more and more people are able to read not only the Bible for themselves, but also Luther's works for themselves. Mm -hmm. But I want to make this important, important point. Many people will say, oh, the Gutenberg printing press is the first printing press in the history of the world. And that is not true. That is colonialist propaganda. Uh, the first printing press in the world was from China. Uh, several thousand years earlier, it had movable wooden blocks and it was highly effective. Um, but Gutenberg creates the first printing press in Europe and that really helps get the Reformation brewing. Mm -hmm. And also, and Jaron, that's a lovely point you brought up is that got the Reformation moving and what, was, what would be considered a downside to having so many works um, produced? I think one of the problems with so many works produced is that you, you're slowly, the more works you have, the more open you are to attack. There's more um, evidence for people to draw upon um, to look for contradictions or look for errors. Um, and so that can be a downside. And also as Luther got older, he tended to write a lot of things we wish he didn't write. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, one of the writings that he, um, he wrote, um, and he was not unapologetic, he was, he was very clear in what he wrote. Um, he wrote on the Jews and their lies. Um, not to defend Luther or anything, he wrote that because he was upset that the Jews would not convert to um, his version of Christianity. 
Um, and unfortunately, that work became uh, part of the basis of the Third Reich under Hitler in Germany during um, 1933 to 1945. Um, there are several Lutheran bodies that have um, denounced um, Luther's works um, on the Jews and their lies. Um, and it's that is a stain on Luther's legacy. And I think it's also a stain on the Lutheran church as a whole and something that we need to repent of, which mm -hmm. the ELCA has done. Mm -hmm. um, I believe what's interesting too is that Luther was fairly favorable towards Jews early in his life, mm -hmm. at least more so than other church leaders at that time. But like most of Luther's teachings, the older he got, the more pugnacious he became, the more volatile he became. He kind of become, became this grumpy old man. Um, and psychologically, the way it's been explained to me before is that he had lost everything. Um, he had lost his church. He had lost um, a lot of his wealth. He had lost everything that he had. He wanted to reform the church. He didn't want to break away from it. And um, he just, uh, I, I think that he was a broken man in his later years. And also there might have been some, um, a decrease in his mental faculties at that time as well. Mm -hmm. Not to excuse any of the um, mm -hmm. horrific things that he wrote. Mm -hmm. Well, Jaron, is there anything else that we can talk about with the indulgences? Well, actually, I'm remembering, I think you have an interesting point to make about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. That is about this, and it might not be something many people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So if you can explain this and then read the passage, I think that'd be very helpful. I'm trying to find the passage because there are... Indulgences have a very long history within the church. Um, if we consider uh, 400 years to be a long history, um, sometimes a year feels like a long history, given that we are in midst, still in the midst of a pandemic. Um, so uh, trying to find the talk about it. Um, So this is, um, in this, and what I'm about to say, Luther responded to as well. Um, this is from J. Rubenstein. He is professor of medieval theology and medieval history at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Um, the call to crusade had always been, among other things, um, oh, the terms of the papal indulgence, however, were not as straightforward as they seem. The main difficulty concerns the meaning of holy war. Then as now, holy war had no definition. Porno um, like pornography, you knew it when you saw it, when for example, in the eighth century, the epic, in the epics, um, eighth, in the eighth century epic poem of Song of Roland, angels carry dead Christian warriors to heaven, demons drag dead Saracen souls to hell, and the archangel Gabriel helped Charlemagne strike death blows against the Babylonian king. You know you're looking at holy war. To win God's help, warriors like Roland, Charlemagne's chief lieutenant of the poem, needed to be imbued with righteousness and justice. 
In an ordinary war, soldiers could be reprobates and not endanger the outcome of a battle, which depended on strategy or which side God favored. Holy warriors, by contrast, needed to be pure. If they were not, if they did not perform enough penance to redeem the transgressions, there were slaves of sin and hence fatally flawed instruments in the war of salvation. Their simple presence on the battlefield undermined their cause, no matter how righteous that cause may be. These um, ideas gave shape to stories about the First Crusade and helped explain its success. Urban's formal indulgence, however, contained stipulations. Not everyone could substitute going to Jerusalem for all penance. Penance would not be guaranteed to all crusaders, rather only, only to those who left with pure motives for love of God and Jerusalem, not for fame or treasure. Yet fame and treasure would have been difficult to avoid since they're all part of the same package. One version of the Pope's sermon, for example, stresses that Palestine is a land flowing with milk and honey with economic opportunities far beyond what warriors could find in the overworked fields of France. Um, and then this is kind of a critique of the indulgence uh, still within the Rubenstein. Urban's promise of indulgence raised yet another problem, more fundamental and potentially more dangerous. Namely, to borrow from Abbott theory, how weighty a book had the first crusaders actually received because of their efforts. Had they won enough letters to foil demons on judgment day, no matter how numerous their crimes, or only a few prodigious tokens that they might later bring into play or tr to try to redeem their souls. The formula ironed out at Claremont notes that the journey served as a substitute for all penance. But what was that all limited to sins confessed or before or during the campaign might to embrace later sins too. So that's um, part of the history of the indulgence. And um, originally it was a get out of jail free card, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, a get out of jail free card for crusaders participating in a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. But as history progressed and the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church at this time was fin facing financial hardship, um, the indulgences were then, uh, were then seen as a way of making money. And I think it's important to note is that the Catholic Church does end up reforming its indulgences. Um, we'll get to this down the road, but when there's the Counter-Reformation comes around, the Catholic Church reforms its indulgence practices. Um, and so today you might hear Catholics talk about indulgences, but those are vastly different compared to what Johann Tetzel was doing during Martin Luther's day. Mm -hmm. Now, you might find there are some Catholic apologetic groups out there, like a Church Militant or Catholic Answers, who will claim that the Catholic Church never endorsed indulgences where you give money to get out of purgatory. Uh, that is not historically accurate. Um, all mainstream historians agree that the Catholic Church um, asked for money in favor of indulgences that got you out of purgatory. But to be fair, they, the Catholic Church does reform once the Protestant Reformation is underway. And so the indulgences that the Catholic Church uses to this day are not the same as the indulgences from long ago. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just important to remember that we cannot apply 
we cannot be anachronistic with our approach to history. We cannot apply the sins of the Catholic Church back then to the uh, Catholic Church today, just as it is would be unfair to apply the sins of the Lutheran Church to the Lutheran Church of today. Mm-hmm. Um, every day, I we just need to treat all those who are different from us with respect and love, and um, work on what unifies us, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. That is true. Amen to that, Jaron. Amen to that. Well, I think that wraps up our show for today. Uh, We thank you for Mm -hmm. joining us as we talk about indulgences and how this sparks the Protestant Reformation. And we look forward to posting our next video next week. Alrighty. I'm Thomas. And I'm Jaron. And we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.